Amen. We're cruising through the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 9. Uh, just celebrated my anniversary. And with that, I started thinking about anniversary stuff. And you may not know this, but if you're married, most likely you married a mirror. Here's what I mean. You married someone that is way more similar than you than not. The way you think, your, whatever it is, that's just what you do. And science has shown that to be true. You might be saying, no way, I'm not at all like her. No, you are. <laughs> in more ways, there might be a little bit that you're different and there are strengths and weaknesses, no doubt in there, but you're more similar than you are different. And if you're not married, just think about your relationships, your friendships, your crew. Think about what they like and what they dislike. Think about what is cool to them. Think about where they lean politically. Think about their education. Think about what they do for fun. Think about the way they dress. If you could take all those friendships and compress them into one person, guess what you'd have? You. Me. And we're all a little narcissistic. And science has shown this, and we could do that, but I don't want to. But the old adage that opposites attract is mostly wrong. Opposites actually annoy us. That's what the truth is. We like people that are much more similar. And because of that tendency in humans, here's what we do. We then form tribes and crews and cliques. We do it all the time, don't we? Men with the truck you drive. I'm a Ford man. I'm a Chevy guy. I'm a Dodge dude. And then we get a little picture of a kid going to the bathroom on the other brands, right? See, I'm so much better. That's what we do. Football teams, I'm a duck, I'm a beaver, right? Trumps versus anti-Trumpers, right? They cannot get together, right? If they do, you'll put the fun in fundamentalism if that happens. So we, we get real careful with that, right? No? Okay, well, good for you. Right? Mostly we look at the other side as like we, we demonize them, don't we? Like uh, people that are not Republicans are like, hey, Republicans are warmongering, greedy, in it for the money. They don't care about anything. And there's like Democrats are pinko socialists who want to give out drugs and condoms to kids. And then we're going to all end up reading the Koran and being an ISIS, right? Because that's just tribal in us. So what we do, it's what we've been doing for thousands and thousands of years. We do it with our lifestyle, right? I want to be off grid. I want to grow my own food. I want to make my own clothing. I'm going to move to Ashland and recycle my toilet paper and be a hippie. <laughs> and the other crew is like, no way. I'm going to drive a Hummer. I'm going to eat at McDonald's. I'm going to wear sweatshop clothing. I'm going to buy lots of guns and drive a Ford and be a caveman and live in Grants Pass. Okay? Right? We just do it. With, it's in our nature. I don't care what area you talk about. We tend to gravitate toward people like ourselves. That's what we do. We have this in versus out mentality. Okay, so rerun the clock 2,000 years. Israel. Did they have that? Oh, yeah. They had markers where you could immediately identify if somebody is in or out. So if you went to Sabbath on Saturday morning, you're in. 
If you didn't eat certain kinds of food, you're in. If you wore this kind of clothing, you're in. And if you didn't, you're out. Now, does that still happen in church? Oh, for sure. Have you ever had the conversation with somebody wondering about another person's salvation? Are they in or out? I think they might be a Christian. They do some good things, but they did drink beer with their pizza. I just don't know. (laughs) He seems like a nice guy, right? He goes to church all the time, but he drives a Maserati. I just don't know if he's saved, right? We all do it. We all have these like markers. You can have faith in Jesus and there's still a thing in us where we wanna divide in tribal and do that. Okay, so welcome to Mark chapter nine. There are two stories that are paired together and they are brilliant because of their pairing. And it's Jesus addressing this very issue and he gives us wisdom on it and then a priority in it. We're trying to divide. Jesus gives the priority for the believer. It's brilliant. Let's jump in. Chapter nine, verse 38. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Now you would think he'd be like, and we were stoked. It was so awesome. But he's not. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. (laughs) But Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon after to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. See the in and out right there? John and the crew see a guy who is actually casting out a demon. And what does he do? He doesn't celebrate. He's like, knock it off. You can't do that. Why? Because you're not following us. You're not part of the in crowd. Stop it. Now, I wonder personally, I wonder if the reaction of the disciples is partly because if you've been with us, just a couple verses before this, verse 29, they had failed to cast out a demon, right? I called it the stubborn demon. That they had failed, and the Greek here is literally, these other people, outsiders, were successful in casting out this demon. I wonder if that's causing part of this problem right here, their failure. Do you know that can happen to you? That what you just went through a week before, a day before, an hour before, actually affects how you interact in the moment? That your past almost always clouds your present. Psychologically, it's called priming that we are primed to respond in a certain way by events that are just right behind us. I'll give you a really simple example. Here it is. Just a list of words. Now read this list of words and come down to the last word. And how would you finish that last word? 
The guy in first service said gravy. I said, bro, you're still at Thanksgiving, man. You've been primed by Thanksgiving. That's a long priming, right? So green, right? Okay. Now fill in this missing word. Grape, right? What just happened? Same two uh, letters, right? But you've been primed to think differently. All right. That goes in every avenue of our life. And I think as believers, we should be really cognizant, aware that this can happen to us. That when we come home from work, we're not just coming home as we are. We're bringing with us an overstuffed luggage of all the events that happened at work, good and bad. And that can then cloud how we respond to our spouse, to our children, to our neighbors, to situations. And so as believers, I think it's really important that on the ride home or sitting in your driveway before you get out, you unload your luggage. You cast all that stuff on Jesus. You say, I don't want to bring this situation. I know it's affecting me right now. I know what it's, 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 color, it's priming me and I don't want to bring that in and have it unloaded on my family in a way that can hurt them and harm them. I know that's for me. I've been really, really aware of that recently. And I've been trying to say, hey, I don't want to bring all that garbage back to my house. I need to unload this. Okay, Jesus, take this from me. Free me from this. I'm casting this on you. I want you to take it from me. Sometimes I just write it out, put it on paper. Okay, I'm closing it. I can deal with that later, all right? So I think they were primed. It may be why they responded this way, like, stop it, knock it off, okay? Because think about it. Is casting a demon out good? Yes! And what were they doing? Stopping outsiders from doing a super good thing because they had been primed by their own failure. So what does Jesus do in this situation? His answer is amazing because it helps you and me evaluate other ministries, evaluate how people that are not in our crew, followers of us, do it. Like, should we support that or not? And if we get this wrong, there are groups that are called discernment ministries. All they do is verse 38. We've had them here, right? With their signs and their aggressive techniques right outside our church. So they, they do it here. They always come on like really nice days. Have you noticed that? It's never too hot or too cold. They come on lukewarm days. So that's between them and God. And part of that's in all of us. Then we look at how another ministry does something and we start trying to like criticize them. It turns us into something. I say we become refs. We're on the field, but we're not actually playing the game anymore. We're not moving the ball. We're not changing anything. We're just blowing our whistles and throwing our flags and penalizing anyone that doesn't do it the way we think we sh they should do it, right? But here's the thing about a ref. There's no Heisman Trophy for a ref. There's no MVP ref. No one remembers the ref. I don't want to be a ref. So what Jesus says here is super helpful for me personally when I look at those that are outside of how I do things, how to evaluate their ministries. He says two things. Number one, don't stop mighty works in my name. That's number one. Number two, 
He says, if, they're, if they are not against us, they are for us. How simple is that? I just put those both together and it's simple to me. It's, hey, people that are doing mighty works are family. People that are doing mighty works in the name of Jesus, they're my family. It's that simple. And we can, because of, I think, denominational things and because of that, we can get in this mentality that if they're not 100% doing it like we do it, then we can't partner with them in any way, right? Well, we can't work with that church. Why? Because they believe in infant baptism. Oh, because they don't believe the Holy Spirit works like the book of Acts or because they do believe the Holy Spirit works like the book of Acts or because they use bongos on the stage. They're conjuring up demons, I'm sure of it. Oh, we can't because they take communion every single Sunday. What in the world is wrong with them? Because they dunk people at baptism, because they sprinkle people at baptism, because they don't baptize, because they have tattoos there, because they serve caffeine. It's Christian crank. They're just making druggies out in their foyer. You can't believe it. Ah, right? There's just all this nuttiness that divides us up and says, oh, you can't. Why? It's insane. We're just like verse 38. It's been said that the only difference between a Christian and a terrorist is you can negotiate with a terrorist. So that's in all of us right? It's in me. I can be the worst at this because I've studied, I've done theology, I've taken my theology and kind of come up with philosophies of how you do things. I've taken those philosophies and say, those lead to how we are now using these methods by which we do church and do the stuff that we do. And I'm pretty sure of them or I'd change them. But I have to go back in my own history and look and see how there's times I was wrong theologically, philosophically, and in methods. So probably right now, there are areas that I'm not aware that I'm wrong right now. So I should take a deep breath and a step back. And when I look at other ministries, I ask the simple questions Jesus asked me to ask. Are they doing mighty works in his name? Like that seems to be the most important thing. And it's real simple when talking about Jesus's name. It's after his nature, according to the way that Jesus does things in the Bible. Do they believe that Jesus is God come in the flesh, Emmanuel? Do they affirm his work on the cross on our behalf for the atonement of sins? If they do that, they're family. If they do that, I don't have to throw a flag or blow a whistle because we need a lot more mighty works happening in our country than are happening right now. So why in the world would I be trying to attack another ministry that's doing things in the name of Jesus and they're just doing a little bit different. But you shouldn't. You shouldn't. It's really simple here. And then Jesus immediately turns the table. Right? They're pointing at them. Hey, they gotta stop that. I don't like how they do that. They're not following us. Jesus turns the table and says, that's not what you're supposed to be focused on. Them out there. Here's the focus. Check this out. It's brilliant. Verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him 
if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. Is hell a long time? Unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Jesus here turns the camera around and points it right back at us. Before you're talking about them being outsiders and them stopping what they're doing and looking at what they're doing over there, before you do that, make sure your life personally is clean. It's John 8, a woman caught in adultery in the very act of it, thrown at the feet of Jesus. They're ready to kill her and stone her. And what does Jesus say? Whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. Deal with your own junk first. And it says they all left. So Jesus here is saying to his disciples, I know you're looking out at them and saying, what's wrong with them? They need to stop doing what they're doing over there. We're trying to stop them. Jesus is saying, uh-uh. You deal with your junk first because that's gonna enable you to be a kind of people that have compassion and empathy and forgiveness and the right heart for others. You won't be a judgmental, graceless jerk to other people if you've dealt with your own junk, if you've looked at your own self. So here's what he does. First, he warns about the damage that sin does. It's verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones, kids, who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. I call this Mafia Jesus. You get a cement necklace. Jesus says, you know what's better than hurting one of these little things? It's for you to make yourself a concrete necklace and throw it into the ocean. That's better, okay? This is unbelievable to me. And here's why. Let me try to peel back 2,000 years of history because how we live today is an historic anomaly when it comes to how we deal with little ones. You may or may not know this, but it's the water we swim in, so we don't even know it. So I read um, a couple of articles recently on Jeffrey Epstein. Remember him? The rich billionaire playboy who liked to prey on underage girls, right? That was his thing. So before he died, he, through a lawyer, 
put out this. He said, listen, I am not an anomaly. I am the historic norm that how I have chosen to live my life, if you look at history, this is what rich men have done for eons, time immemorial. Rich men did what they wanted. And he's right. So there's a great article. It's by a, uh, he's a missionary actually in Tokyo. And you can Google if you want. It's called What Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein Got Right by Ralph Allen Smith. And you can read it. It's, it's good. It's old one. But I'm gonna give you some excerpts from it to try to unpack for you how different we live today. So here they are. First one. This is all about Jeffrey Epstein and him saying, hey, I'm the norm. The unpleasant truth is that historically speaking, using children, even relatively young children, as objects for men's sexual satisfaction has been the rule, not the exception. That's history. No ancient culture included laws about how old a slave had to be before the master could take advantage of him or her. That's still the case in modern Muslim countries that allow slavery. Poor families from almost every land and during every age sold their children into prostitution. Then finally, no one thought of men who frequented such young women as perverts or abusers. They were customers, often powerful and rich men to be feared. That's the norm of history. So then he goes on to say, so what changed it? Did religions change it? So he gives two examples of some religions. The first one is Islam. According to Muslim sources, Muhammad famously married Aisha when she was six years old and consummated the marriage when she was nine. Well, that's a long time ago, okay? The Ayatollah Khomeini is said to have married a 10-year-old girl. This happens. How about Buddhism? Theravada Buddhism, the oldest form of Buddhism, a woman has to be reborn as a man <laughs> even to have a chance in nirvana. And monogamy is not part of the religion. And it goes on and on and on. And that's history. This is what Jeffrey Epstein got right. So what has changed? Jesus. Let's rest this article. It's Jesus. It's him, verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones, right? Because during history, if you read ancient history, men ruled their homes like tyrants. Do you know that? Most of history, a man could beat his wife however he wanted and no one would bat an eye. Most of history, a man could sell his kids into slavery and no one would bat an eye. Why do we find that appalling today? One reason and one reason alone. Because of Jesus Christ. Because he elevated. This would be such a radical statement to that culture. Value these little ones. Value them. They have worth and dignity because they are image bearers of God. That Jesus took the most vulnerable, weak, destitute, poor, orphan child and gave them the same dignity as a king because they are image bearers of the Father. That's what changed world history. It's Jesus. It's statements like this right here change world history. And so for me, knowing just a tiny bit of history and seeing that when I begin to look at how our culture is going right now with just absolute sexual confusion, 
We're as sexually confused as any culture in history, right? With just insanity with gender and all this. Like, you can't even use terms anymore. Like, that doesn't mean that anymore. Well, why doesn't it mean that? It's just insanity, right? No one can figure out anything anymore when it comes to this confusion. That little girls are being tricked into making life-altering decisions because of an agenda of our culture now. Getting put on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones at nine, 10, 11. Like you're saying, this is insane. Who thinks this is right? They're not old enough to make that decision. That has long-term implications on their life. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? With pornography. Now I have a lot of interactions with DHS. And so at times I get to have a good conversation with them. Like there seems to be an increase in this stuff. Why is it? In, in, in moments of honesty, they're like, it's pornography. It's fueling this abuse of children because what they're watching gets harder and harder and more graphic and crazy and they see it and they see it enough and it starts to drill into the head and then they go try it. And little ones get hurt. Like at social media and how it just absolutely presses this one image of a woman and that's it. It breaks my heart. That's where we're going as a culture. And when I see all this, I think the only way that this is gonna end is going back to a history that's really, really bad. And the church has to continue to be the prophetic voice in our culture that says that is wrong, especially when it's unpopular. That's when the church has to speak even louder, prophetically saying, this is wrong. I don't care about culture. I don't care about what you guys think. This is completely wrong. And so there are times that we get these like postings on Facebook and you'll see them if you're ever on our post, post and our Facebook page, you'll see them. And they're like, you guys are haters, you're this and that, you're whatever. I applaud those messages. I'm so glad that they happened because that tells me we're saying the truth right now. And I'm glad there's a response, 100%. Because if we don't prophetically speak up for the little ones we are losing what Christianity has changed in the entire world over 2,000 years. We keep standing on this period. Children have the same dignity as kings. It's not rich and powerful. You're gonna play with them whatever they, in which, whatever they want. No way. We say no way. So Jesus is doing something to his disciples right here. He's trying to change them. He's saying, before you point at other people and say how bad they are or how they need to change or now how they need to follow you in a certain way, before you ever do that, look at your own life and make sure it's clean. It's the brilliance of these two stories being back to back. And what does Jesus say to do if you're sinning? Amputate, right? Isn't that the nuclear option? Isn't that the last absolute option? Like, that's crazy. Could you imagine going to a doctor and you've got like a tennis elbow or something? You're like, hey doc, you know, I got this sore tennis elbow. Can, can you help me? Sure. What are we gonna do? We'll amputate it right at the elbow. What? Time out. Isn't there some other option? Yeah, we could take out the shoulder instead. You'd run from that guy. Like, you're nuts. Jesus is saying, when it comes to sin, and how it hurts little ones, you take the nuclear option or else it's gonna drag you into hell. That's what he's saying. 
I mean, this is as strong of a statement on sin as they're in the Bible. So is Jesus literally serious about self-mutilation? If my hand causes me to sin, I cut it off. There are countries that if you steal, they'll cut your arm off today. They're serious about it. If my foot causes me to sin, takes me somewhere I shouldn't, I kick my little brother or little sister. If I got mad at your tools and kicked them, all right, off with your foot. If your eye causes you to sin, anyone's eye ever caused them to sin? I don't know. <laughs> Pluck the thing out, right? End up with hooks for hands, peg legs, and eye patches. Seems like Jesus wants to make us all into pirates, apparently. This is serious, right? You read this and you're like, wow. And we can debate the level to which Jesus is calling us to act, but no one can debate how serious he is when it comes to sin. Before you're pointing at other people, before you're judging them, before you're telling them to stop, you deal with your own junk, Matt Heverly. You deal with it. And there's a term used in the Bible for this. It's called mortification. It doesn't get preached on very much anymore. 400 years ago, it was like a Puritan favorite. Mortification, mortification, mortification. It comes from Romans chapter eight, verse 13. And it's the Greek word, thanat. I got it actually written out right here. Thanatout. Here's the definition of how you and I are to respond to sin. Very similar to what Jesus is saying. To put to death, to cease completely from activity with the implication of extreme measure taken to guarantee such a cessation, to stop completely, to cease completely. That's how we're supposed to deal with sin. And it's not just here. It's not just Jesus. I can keep going. Ephesians 4.22 puts it like this. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Galatians 5.24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified. What happens when someone's crucified? They die. Have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Does the Christian church, big C church, do this today about sin? Do we mortify? When's the last time you heard a message on mortification of the flesh? I haven't heard one in a long time. And it's not popular because we don't really deal with sin that way anymore. We kind of massage sin and make excuses for sin and, and make little, you know, well, you know, that may be applied to them, but you know, I'm an exception to the, we do all these things. We don't really deal with sin this way anymore. A radical nature. Maybe it's like this. Many years ago, it was 1996, 1995. I just graduated from college. Um, I had a job opportunity in Detroit, Michigan, which I turned down. I've been to Detroit. 
I did not want to live in Detroit. So I came, did what a lot of college students do when you can't get a job. I came back to Grants Pass and lived with my mom. And right when I had um, graduated, like within weeks of it, Boeing laid off 3,000 engineers. So the job market was just impossible. I don't know if you remember 95, not a fun time. It's a very hard time to get jobs. Things lit up with the internet right after that, but 95 was hard. So I just did whatever I could do. I did construction, you name it, I did it. And a friend of my mom's, an older lady, had this little farm out in Merlin, and she had some turkeys that she wanted to, she had raised them and she wanted to harvest them. And she asked if I could help. I'm like, sure, you know, no problem. So I go out there and the turkeys are like her pets. They're just following her around. They're like super tame. They let you pet them. I'm like, wow, that's amazing, right? Super nice lady, older. And she's like, have you ever done this before? I'm like, no, I was raised in, in Grants Pass. I was raised in town. Like we didn't do any of this. So she's like, okay, well, here's how you do it. First of all, you got to get like the Tiffy and Trudy, you got to get them, tie their legs together and then tie them to this, she had this board across these two posts, all right? So I'm like, okay, so that was step one. That was brutal. I mean, these are giant birds. I've got feathers all over me. I'm sweating. I finally get them kind of tied up there. She's like, calm down, calm down, calm down. I'm like, okay, whoo, step one done. She's like, okay. She gave me this little it was like a tiny wooden handle to a hammer without the hammer. She goes, now take this and just tap them gently on the head. And then we'll proceed from there. So I'm like, I don't know any of this. And I took the little hammer. I went, tap. That was not a happy turkey. It like flew all the way up in the air and was like flying, strapped down to this board. And the other one starts doing the same thing. And there's just, it looked like a pillowcase had exploded. And the lady's just like, oh, Trudy, oh, Tim, oh, calm down, calm down. So finally they get back down. She's like, okay, do that again, but hit him just a little bit harder. Said, All right. I do the same thing, a little bit harder. Not same, just repeat. Up there, feathers going everywhere. Her like now crying. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is horrible. I'm feeling bad. I'm not, I'm not like a murderer. I don't like this stuff. So I just said, lady, stand back. And I swung for the fence. And they were mortified. And so was the lady. I think with sin, we tap it today. And all it does is make it worse. Jesus, the Bible, says to believers, you don't tap sin. You swing for the fence. That's what he's saying. You go radical on this. You don't make excuses for it. You don't justify your actions. You don't modify God's rules. You don't try to say, well, you know, I'm the exception or I was born this way. Nope. You get serious and you swing for the fence when it comes to sin. And that makes you in the, to the kind of people that then are full of empathy and compassion for other people and their sin. And you stop hurting the little ones. Because sin is a grenade. Do you know that? Your sin always hits the people closest to you. You always hurt them. You go radical. You go radical. So I taught on this. When I taught through the book of Romans, must have been 2008, on mortification. And right after that message, a guy in the front row came up to me. Still remember him. He handed me his phone. He said, that phone right there is how I get all my drugs. I want to stop drugs take my phone. He said, you will have half the drug dealers in Grants Pass calling you today. I said, awesome. It was a really fun day, man. I talked to him. I think a couple were like, is this God? 
One that said, is this Pastor Matt and Click? I'm like, oh, aha. God's going to hunt you down, boy. <laughs> That's what it is. Is a phone worth your life? Jesus says your hand isn't worth your life. Your foot isn't worth your life. Your eye isn't worth your life. Mortification is you grab a hold of that thing, whatever it is, and you sit on it and squeeze it until it breathes its last. That's what it means. If a computer is causing you problems, you kill it. If your phone is causing you problems, you kill it. If your boyfriend is pressing you to sin, you kill that relationship. That's what he's saying. If a job is causing you to sin, you quit it. I gotta get a different job because that job's causing me to sin. It's just that simple. This is what Christians are to do because it makes you into the kind of people then that can actually carry out the message that Jesus wants, that can actually call a country back prophetically to the way that they're supposed to go because we've dealt with our own junk first. And we're not graceless jerks. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but the harvest is hell. And so Jesus says, don't let these things drag you into hell. Cut them off. That's the message. Well, how, man? Mine's not as easy as a phone. It's other things. We're in 1 Samuel right now. And Samuel, the last prophet, gives last kind of judge prophet, which was a role that ended with the kings. He gives this message. It's the longest message by Samuel. And he says in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel, he says this. He said, listen, Israel, look back at your history. There's been two things that have been constant when God met you. You prayed and you repented and God saved you from your junk. You prayed and you repented. Those twin powers that changed destiny. This is how we pray as believers. It's 1 John 1, 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess there, it's the Greek word homo legeo. Homo means same, legeo means language. Confession is real simple. You're not arguing with God. You're not justifying to God. You're not making excuses to God. You're not telling God why you have to do this. You're not telling God why you can't do that. Homo legeo means you agree with God. God, you said this was sin. I am agreeing with you and I'm confessing it as sin, period. And when you do that, ah, oh, you're cleansing from that. That's prayer. And here's repentance. Repentance means a 180 degree turn. They would take their Baals and their Ashtaroths and their Lytles and all that stuff and they would take them out and they would burn them and break them. That's repentance. It's, all right, I'm gonna make sure and shut the door on evil. This is how evil been getting to me. It's my phone, it's whatever it is. So I'm gonna shut the door on that. I'm gonna turn about face, get rid of that junk. And man, every time Samuel says, when you did that, God rushed to you and rescued you and saved you. Prayer and repentance. And hell's fires are quenched. And you get, verse 50, salty and peace. You get flavor again, where people are like, I want what you got. You got flavor again. And you get peace with one another. Because sin always ruins the peace in your home. Do you know that? It just does. It primes you for problems. 
And when you take care of it, you get peace. You stop hurting the little ones around you. That's why. This is why Jesus is so serious about this. That's why I'm preaching this message on this. Because I think the church needs to go back to prayer and repentance when it comes to sin. Not making excuses, not looking at culture, none of that. Prayer and repentance, period. And so as we go to the table today, maybe, just maybe, there's something God's spirit has been prodding you on recently, or maybe even this morning in this message. And you know there's a door of evil into your home, into your life. I think you're given an opportunity today by God's spirit to deal at a death blow in prayer and repentance. All right, Lord. I'm not gonna argue with you. I'm not gonna make excuses for my behavior. I'm not gonna point my finger at other people. I'm gonna point the finger at myself that I need to be changed. And so Jesus, today, as we hold your broken body, I pray that we would be a people who listen carefully to the words that you speak, knowing that they are life, freedom, and that we would receive from you today the daily bread, the strength we need to make a break from a lifestyle that's hell. So would you empower every person in here to cut off those things that are dragging us down, hurting little ones, destroying our peace, getting rid of of our saltiness. And we pray that we receive from you every day our daily bread, that we wouldn't be concerned about tomorrow. Tomorrow you'll give us the strength to make those same decisions, same prayer, same repentance. So we ask that you'd feed our spirits today. Let's eat together. We hold the cup. The cup of forgiveness. The cup of cleansing. The cup of the big movement of the Bible that you want to be our God and we need to be your people. So I ask as we drink today I pray that we'd be reminded that our sins 
have been forgiven. Let's drink together. Amen. So we offer prayer and baptism after every service. Maybe you need prayer. Maybe there is a besetting sin. The Bible talks about besetting sins. It talks about strongholds. And sometimes by getting prayer, those things are broken. And that can be a hard thing to ask for. But I think it's easier than chopping off your hand or plucking out your eye. So maybe today you come up and just get prayer. Pray, I need strength here. But whatever your prayer need might be, finances, disease, health, peace, relationships, cast all your cares on Jesus today. And we offer baptism. Someone will be right over here by this door after this service. Maybe baptism is the thing that you need to do today where it's, I'm making a break. The old me is dying in these waters today. I'm being resurrected into a new life. I'm making a break from that today. If that's your day, if today is the day you wanna be baptized, man, we'd love to join with you as Jesus continues to author and finish your faith. Would you stand for this final song?